Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, my name is Tom Warren. I'm the high school pastor here at Chapel Street, and on occasion, I have the chance to come over here on a Sunday morning and spend some time with you. It's always so fun to worship with you guys here at the Mill Creek campus. And I don't say that about every campus. I'm kidding. I really do. But it is especially fun to be with you, so many of you that I recognize uh, here today. So I want to start uh, by uh, just quickly introducing you to my daughter. If you've ever been here when I've preached before, you probably feel like you've watched her grow up over the last couple of years. I talk about her almost every sermon, but uh, she's got two fingers up in this photo proving that she turned two years old uh, last month. We had a big birthday party for her, which is super fun. Uh, and if you're wondering, she's about every part of being a two-year-old that you could possibly imagine. It's a real fun time in our house. But despite all of that, something that I've recognized in her is it really seems like she enjoys being generous. For example, like most mornings when she wakes up, one of the first things she does is she asks for a snack, which, uh, for breakfast essentially, and she always wants this specific, like it's an oatmeal granola bar. So there's this one day, it was like two or three weeks ago, something like that, she woke up, she asked for a snack, and so I grabbed her that bar and I handed it to her, and she grabbed it from my hand, and she immediately offered it right back to me, and she said, Daddy, you want one? I was like, well, that's the sweetest thing ever. So I was like, yeah, thank you so much. And I grabbed her another bar and gave her that one. Now, fast forward a few minutes. She finished the bar that I gave her second. And you know what she did? She grabbed the bar out of my hand and then <laughs> ate that one too. And it took me a second to like put it all together and figure it out. But what I think I realized is that her generosity was really powered by the fact that one, she is way smarter than I am. And two, that in her mind, she thought that if she was generous for a moment, that ultimately she would get what she really wanted in return later. And today we continue on in our sermon series across all Chapel Street campuses entitled The Way. And if you've been tracking with us throughout the past month and a half or so, you know that our objective in this series really has been to explore the way of Jesus as it was practiced and followed in the early church and then draw connections to see what that looks like and how that relates to us in the church in our day here today. So if you've been with us, you know we've talked about the way of Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We've talked about the way of self-denial and the way of abiding, which we just sang about from John 15. And then a couple weeks ago, we kind of changed our perspective, the way we were looking at this a little bit, from individual to more communal, what it looks like to follow Jesus in community by talking about the way of love and last week on the way of service. And today, as we continue already into week six of this series, we're going to be talking about the way of generosity. Now, my guess is that when many of us hear that word generosity, if you're anything like me, it makes you maybe like at least a little bit uncomfortable, right? Whether you're new to church, if you've been here for a long time, nobody really likes talking very much about money or talking very much about generosity. But I think today as we explore this idea, this topic of generosity, I think what we're going to see might surprise us a little bit. And I hope will give us a little bit fuller, maybe a little bit of a new perspective about what generosity is really all about. Here's a summary statement on the screen of what we're going to see today as we look at a passage at the end of Acts chapter 4. That the way of generosity is the result of the gospel at work within you. Let me say that again. The way of generosity is the result of the gospel at work within you. So as we prepare to dive into our passage here today, let's just pause again and, and take a brief moment to pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. 
Jesus, we just come before you again today, God, just grateful for the chance we have to, to gather, to be together, to, to turn our hearts and our minds toward you. God, we thank you for the love and the grace that you've given to each one of us, and Lord, as we approach your word, God, would you just give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us here today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 uh, for the most part today, and so let's dive right in to the end of the chapter here. Here's what Luke writes beginning in verse 32, to should be up here on the screens as well. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, when I first read through that passage and with the idea that this, the sermon title is The Way of Generosity, a few things kind of stood out to me right away. That first, it doesn't really start where I assumed it might start. Second, the passage hardly talks about money at all. And third, it, it doesn't use the word generosity or, or generous at all. And I think that as we dive into this, that's why we'll, what we're really going to discover as we work our way through this morning is that there's somewhat of a progression that leads to generosity. Or in other words, the way of generosity actually starts several steps back. It's a product of something else. So we're going to walk through some of those steps together here this morning by talking about the way of unity, the way of sharing, and the way of grace before ultimately talking about the way of generosity. The first thing we see here in our passage in Acts chapter 4, like I said, is what I'm calling the way of unity. Now, I think we all kind of know or we can all kind of feel when something is unified, and we all kind of know and can feel when something is disunified. For example, years ago, I went to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. The worship team was joking that they wanted to see how I would talk about the orchestra. Because if you know me, not really much of an orchestra guy, not really much of a musician by any stretch. But anytime I get to experience something like that, the orchestra I went to, it was like 10 years ago. Anytime I, I kind of walk outside of my like, little comfort zone of, of like sports and kind of that bubble that I like to be in, and I see a performance by just like incredibly talented people, I'm always just amazed and in awe of what they're able to do. I looked it up a little bit this week because I didn't remember a lot of the details about the orchestra. Uh, but did you know that the Chicago Symphony Orchestra has over 100 total musicians? You see the picture up on the screen. There's over 20 different kinds of instruments represented up there. There actually might be more. I was on their website and I started losing count. So there, I don't know how many there are, at least 20. Uh, and they have, this one stood out to me, they have 33 violinists alone. 
33 people playing the, like, I don't know what you do with more than one, but for some reason they've got 33. I was asking Eric about how that works, and I maybe talk to him because I don't totally understand. But I just remember being there just like in awe of this performance, and specifically the way that everything, those 100 plus musicians, those 20 plus instruments, all those violins, like the way that all of those things was, were able to combine to create a complete and just a beautiful sound. Like you could tell that they were very unified. When we look back at verse 32, we see Luke starts off by talking about unity. Acts 4, 32. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now I think in some ways that might kind of sound good to us or sound good on paper, but I think we really need to kind of dive in and talk about what does that actually mean? Like, what does that really look like? If you're familiar at all with the book of Acts, you may know that essentially the book of Acts is trying to tell the story of the early church, that right away the Holy Spirit is at work, and as a result, the church is growing like crazy. We're actually told earlier in Acts chapter 4, the chapter that passage is in, uh, that at this time, the church had grown to about 5,000 men, which if you include, do the math, add women and children. Some scholars, most scholars think it's around 20,000 people. I saw some this week that thought maybe even upwards to like 25 or 30,000 people at this time that are a part of the church. And really, the, f- the focus of much of the book of Acts is on the church as it's scattered out on mission and the gospel is spreading all around the region. But it's here at the end of chapter 4 that Luke kind of takes a quick time out and gives us like a little pause, a little glimpse inside the church to really kind of pull the curtain back and see how the community of the church itself is operating, see what things really look like on the inside. And the first thing he says is that all the believers, all 20 or 25, 30,000 of them, were one in heart and mind, that they were unified. And I don't know about you, but I think especially in the midst of our current culture and all the disunity that we've experienced, both out there but also at times in here, like when I hear something like that, it feels like just somewhat daunting or like almost overwhelming or impossible to me. Like, what does that really mean? What does that really look like? How was that possible? I think in some ways, it's actually really simple. It's possible because they believed the gospel, that they had the same mind, meaning that they understood what really mattered, that they were utterly committed to the fact that Jesus died and rose again, and they had experienced the same power of the Holy Spirit at work among them. And they were one in heart, Meaning that because of the love of Christ in their lives, their love for one another permeated throughout that entire community. We just talked about the way of love a couple of weeks ago. Now, I think it's important to note here that unity is not conformity, right? What unified them wasn't their language, it wasn't their culture, their economic background, it wasn't their political viewpoint. Jesus is what unified them all those years ago, And Jesus is the only thing that can unify us here today. Because unity isn't this thing that we can create or that we can manufacture. Unity is something that God establishes. I think it's really clear that this is a community united in the gospel and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think then the question becomes, how does this established unity as Christ followers become an experienced unity? 
Like, how does this unity play itself out in a way that we can see and feel and understand? That leads to what we see next here in the text, and that is the way of sharing. Let's look back again at verse 32. We'll focus on the second portion of it this time. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, if you think about it, there's inherently something about sharing that seems to cut contrary to our human nature, right? Like, we all know we don't have to teach a child to say the word mine. It's just something that's like hardwired within us. We have something like our default mode, our default setting is to accumulating stuff, to wanting more, to stockpiling as much as we can for ourselves. These last few weeks, something I've noticed, we were out of town like three weeks ago and we came back and this new phrase Raylan picked up is that anytime you like look or comment at something that she's doing, her response to you is, no, you can't steal my fill in the blank, right? So for example, like I'll walk upstairs and I'll see her, you know, she's coloring with her coloring book and I'll be like, oh, you're doing such a good job coloring. And she'll look at me and say, no, you can't steal my coloring book. I don't know who's been stealing stuff from her. I've never stolen a coloring book, I don't think, but for, there's, for some reason, like her default setting is that those belong to me and that you, especially dad, it seems, can't have them. And I think, like, we like to pin this on kids because they're ridiculous and cute, but I think there's something within all of us that kind of views things this way, that we view the things that we have as ours, mine. I think that's why verse 32 is so striking that no one claimed any of their possessions as their own, but they shared everything that they had. That every member of this community shared a common way of life. Every member shared each other's joys and burdens. They shared their time, their talents, all of their possessions. They shared everything with everybody all the time. And I think this radical type of sharing should stand out to us because we don't typically see that, I don't think, in our culture. It's not something we, from, on a day-to-day basis, really experience. Like I said a moment ago, we typically like to operate from this position of thinking what's mine is mine. But we see this incredible example from the early church that I think shows us that unity should really lead us to operate from a position of believing that what's mine isn't just mine, but what's mine in this community is yours. It's ours. See, unity leads to sharing. But as I continued studying this text and preparing for this morning, there continued to be questions in my mind that that I just couldn't, it took me a while to kind of wrestle through and process that, that what's really driving their unity? Like, what is all this sharing? What is that really a result of? And that leads to what I think is really the central point of this text, really the main idea, and that is the way of grace. Let's look back at verse 33. It says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. I think the key to their generosity, did you catch it there? I think the key to their generosity is that the grace of God is at work within them. I think if that's the case, then it's critically important that we take some time to really seek to grasp and understand what Luke is talking about here, what what grace is really all about. 
Because in order to talk about generosity, like I said, we kind of need to take a couple steps backwards. And I think at this point here, really focus, on, focus in on what's at the heart of the gospel itself. Tim Keller describes it like this. He says, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You catch what Keller's saying there? He's saying that our sin, the degree to which we fall short, is so far beyond the way that we typically think about it. But yet at the very same time, the love and the acceptance that we have in Christ is so far beyond the way that we typically think about it. See, I think oftentimes, I, or probably we collectively, try to sit somewhere kind of in the middle of that reality, where we think, yeah, like, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not really that bad, and I know that there's a God who, who loves me and believes in me, but like, if something hard happens in my life, or something doesn't go according to plan, I am pretty quick to question, or to doubt, or to blame him, or to, to, to wonder if I really am truly loved. So I heard earlier this week it said that it seems like many Christians today uh, tend to take a faith that we believe is 100% grace-based. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we're saved by grace through faith. We try to take this faith that's 100% grace-based and turn it into a faith that's like 90 or 95% law-based, right? Where we try to spin faith into this list of things that we should do and, and things that we ought to do in order to earn it. So I think when we hear a description of the gospel like Keller's, I think unfortunately, a lot of us at times hear that and we think, okay, yeah, like, but that's probably for somebody else, right? Because my life isn't really that bad. My sin, like if I think about it, I do mess up, but it's not really that bad. Through this coffee table at our house, it's from Ikea or Target or something like that. It's a few years old, and recently I, I recognized, like, it's getting really wobbly, and I was curious, like, is it falling apart? Do we need to replace it? What's going on? I wasn't really sure, so I thought, well, I'll just go and grab the hex key. It's one of those, you know, things that's kind of a pain to, to uh, assemble at the beginning, but I grabbed the hex key, and I thought, I'll just try to tighten some of the screws and kind of see what happens. And within like five or ten minutes, that table it has some stains on it now, but uh, like it was essentially, like I was able to tighten it up to the point where it was like good as new. Like I was, it's sturdy, it's solid, and it seems like nothing ever happened. I think a lot of times that's kind of how we view our lives, isn't it? Where I just, like I know I've got a couple things in my life that I probably need to take a few minutes to tighten up a little bit, to, to get them sturdy, to, to reassemble my life in some ways. And then I'll be a better person, right? Then I'll be, I might have some stains on me, but I'll, I'll be pretty much good. I'll be good as new. But that's not the gospel at all, is it? Really, the central message of the gospel is that you aren't good enough and you never will be. There's nothing that you can do, but the grace of God is good enough. And Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, offers this gift of grace to you because he loves you. It's not something you have to earn. It's not a list of things that you need to do. You simply just get to receive this gift that he offers to you. Grace is unmerited favor. So what does grace then have to do with generosity? 
It was really helpful for me this week to, to look back a little bit more into what happens in Acts 4 leading up to this text to, to really get the full understanding and full perspective of, of the connection here between grace and generosity. See, at the beginning of Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they're out and they're preaching the gospel to all these different pe- kinds of people that have never heard it before. And this is where we're told, actually, that up to 5,000 men now are a part of the church. That's where uh, we're told that in Acts chapter 4. But they're preaching the gospel, as you know, if you've read through the book of Acts, it causes quite a bit of a disturbance. Actually, Peter and John get arrested for preaching the gospel. Uh, They get thrown in jail, but they continue to preach the gospel, actually to the point where the people that are watching them in jail recognize that the courage that they have to continue preaching the gospel, even though they're being thrown in jail for it, the courage they have must only have come because they had been with Jesus, which is remarkable to think about. But eventually they get released from prison, they go back and they tell the chief uh, priests and the elders all that had happened. And then as a church community, they spend time intentionally praying for boldness. They're, They're preparing to continue going out and preaching the gospel and they pause and they pray for boldness as they do so. And that leads us up to verse 31, just one verse before we picked up this morning. Here's what it says. It says, after they prayed, The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. See, these early followers of Jesus were able to be generous because they had experienced the gospel played out right before them, that they had been with Jesus. There are people from all different kinds of backgrounds who would not only believe that God is good, but who would seen God's goodness firsthand. People who not only believed that God is powerful, but they had experienced the power of God through his Holy Spirit right in front of them. So it was their experience of grace that caused them and led them to be distributors of grace to those around them. The Apostle Paul talks about this really all over the New Testament, which is fitting because if you know much about his story, he had a very tangible experience of the grace of God on the road to Damascus. And you could say really throughout the rest of his life was trying to figure out ways to articulate and explain and share what this grace is really all about to everybody that he encountered. Here's what Paul says about the generous grace of Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. See, Paul here is urging the Corinthian church to be generous, but to be generous in response to the generosity of Jesus. Jesus who willingly became poor, who made himself nothing and took on flesh, became a servant, like we talked about last week, and died on the cross for your sins and mine so that we could be forgiven and restored back to the Father and so that we could experience the wealth and, and the security of living in glory with God for all of eternity. You see, the church in Acts chapter 4 understood grace. And I think it's from this understanding that we see them desire to be gracious and desire to be generous to those around them. See, their generosity was a result of the gospel at work within them, the power of God's grace working through them. 
So let me turn this to, to us for a moment here, to me and to you. In your life, how do you typically view and use the things that God has given to you? What's your blink reaction when you hear the word generosity? You think about grace? Think about the generosity that Jesus has poured out on your life? I'll be honest with you, I, I usually don't. I usually don't think about the gospel at work within me. I think about this list of rules that I think I'm supposed to follow, the things I'm supposed to do, and I think about what I feel like it'll cost me and, and the struggle and the risk that that entails. But I really think that what Jesus wants to teach us through this passage, or at least what he's been teaching me throughout this week, is that generosity is so much more than that. That generosity is about God's grace at work through your life. And I said earlier that the title of this sermon is The Way of Generosity. We'll talk more about that specifically here in a moment. But I think really what's at the heart of this message, what's at the center of this text, it's really all about grace. And I'll be honest, it's something that this week I've really been wrestling with in, in my heart and in my mind. That if generosity is the result of, of the gospel, if, it, if it's the result of, of grace at work in my life, then like, what is it about grace that I still don't seem to really understand at times? Like, where has there been this disconnect in my heart and mind between the grace that I've received from God and the grace that I extend to other people? Have I really allowed God's grace to, to fully impact me, to, to shape every part of my life? Or are there still things that I'm trying really hard to, to hang on to, to, to control? See, this picture of the early church, these people of the way, it's really clear that there are people that are shaped by grace. I think that's critically important that we, that we understand that and have that in our minds as we explore last the way of generosity. There's really two quick things about generosity I want to briefly highlight here from Acts chapter 4. That their generosity was genuine and that their generosity was sacrificial. First, let's talk about genuine generosity. You may have noticed as I read through the passage at the beginning here that what we really never see in this community is any hint of obligation or compulsion or duty, right? It seems evident that their sharing and their generosity is really just a natural overflow of the grace that they have received in their own lives, that they were cheerful givers. Paul talks about this idea of being a cheerful giver just a little bit later on in 2 Corinthians, this time in chapter 9. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever uh, sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. A few years ago, I was uh, challenged by something that a mentor of mine uh, was telling me that him and his family do. And it was that every time an opportunity to be generous presented itself or came up to them, somebody asked them for money or whatever, every time that happened, they said yes. 
And at first, that felt really crazy to me. Uh, and I was actually nervous that if he convinced me to do that, I was going to start doing that. And the first thing that was going to happen is he was going to ask me for money. There was going to be this whole thing. He never did. I'm still curious. But, um, but we started doing that. Me and Ashlyn did a few years ago. And um, I noticed a couple of things throughout that process. At first, it was, like, it was really fun. Like it was a joy to be able to, to say yes to opportunities that came up and to partner with what God was doing through our friends that were going on trips or through missionary uh, connections that I have or whatever, whatever that looked like. It was fun and we found joy in it. And two, as much of a penny pincher as I tend to be, I noticed that every time an opportunity presented itself and we said yes, like God would provide in some way. And he just continued to allow us, continue uh, to, to continue saying yes to other opportunities that came up. I feel like I've been pretty transparent. Like this is something in my life I'm still trying to figure out in a lot of ways. But that, that simple exercise of saying yes when something came up, that really helped change my perspective on generosity. That it's not so much about what I'm supposed to do or the pressure I feel or whatever that looks like, but it's an opportunity to joyfully say yes to whatever it is that God puts before me. Second, we see sacrificial generosity in this community in Acts 4. The passage ends by telling us that people who owned land and owned homes from time to time would sell those, and then they would give all the, the money from those sales to the apostles and allowed them to distribute it to whoever had need in their community. It's really a beautiful picture of sacrificial generosity, right? That they weren't focused on accumulating more for themselves, or they weren't worried about all the the what-ifs and the scenarios that might come up in, in the future, down the line, but they were willing to give away, to sacrifice what they had, and sacrifice the comfort that they had in order to generously bless other people. I don't think this is saying that we should all go home and like list our houses on Zillow this afternoon, but I do think that the question within this maybe is to begin considering what do you have? What could you sacrificially give? How can you trust God to to give away, to be generous with whatever it is that he has entrusted to you? I want to close here this morning by uh, sharing a story with you that Pastor Brian shared with me uh, when we were preparing this sermon together earlier this week. You may know, I don't know if he's been around here much recently, but uh, in August, I think it was, he went on a trip uh, with some of our missions partners to Dubai and Nepal. And so the first leg of the trip, they spent, I think, three nights in a hotel in Dubai, and it was like a church leaders conference, and he was it's fun to hear stories about him tell about this trip. If you ever have a chance, I recommend ask Brian about this trip. It seems really cool. But they spent three days at this conference, and then they went to Nepal, and they got to really experience uh, the church planting ministry that's happening in that part of the, of the world right now, and it's really amazing. I don't know if you're familiar, but Dubai is, is actually one of the richest countries in the entire world. Brian was telling me stories about like how just the buildings are fabulous, the hotels are amazing. He said he stayed like in like a middle-tier hotel, but his guess was it was like probably $250, $300 a night, something kind of crazy like that. And Nepal is one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, Brian actually told me that the minimum wage in Nepal uh, equates to be 123 U.S. dollars per month. 
and that many of the, the new believers in Nepal actually are living on far less than that. But Brian told me that before he left and before their group left from Dubai to go to Nepal, that the director of the conference uh, paused and told him that all of the hotel rooms, there's 250 people who attended this conference, but all of those hotel rooms in Dubai were actually paid for by the churches in Nepal, which is, that was my reaction too. Like, what? How? Why? And I think it's because those churches in Nepal really are living out this Acts 4 this model that the church gives us, that they're a people who are, who are united with one heart and mind, people who don't claim possessions as their own, but generously share what they have. And I think more than anything, a community who has experienced the grace of God firsthand and who has the power of God's Spirit working through them. See, when it comes to talking about generosity, I think most of the time we get somewhat uncomfortable because we leave feeling like, yeah, I probably should give more. I probably should be more generous. I need to figure out ways that I can be more generous. And we leave, or at least I do, kind of feeling bad about ourselves. But what if God is telling us something different here today? What if rather than some kind of a a guilt trip or some type of pressure that you and I can't live up to, what if Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, is simply telling you, no, no, Like the goal is not for you to try to make yourself more generous. The goal is go to Jesus. Be with Jesus. Seek to to grasp and to know and to understand the grace of the gospel. Seek to be in the presence of Jesus. Because as you do that, as you seek to understand the grace of the gospel, generosity will be the natural result. Let's pray. Father God, we just pause again here this morning. and Jesus, we just thank you for the kindness that you've shown to us. God, we thank you for the grace that you've given to us through your son. And God, I just pray that you would allow us to experience more of that grace, to experience more of who you are. God, would you reveal yourself to us this, this week even in, in new ways, in more ways. God, would you give us a desire to seek you and to be in your presence? And Lord, would that, the result of that lead toward what we see in Acts 4, unity and sharing and generosity. Jesus, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So I want to extend another invitation for you to join us uh, tonight at S'mores and More and tomorrow at the men's event and encourage you, uh, if you have a friend or a neighbor, it's not too late to invite them. And really the goal of those events is to, to seek to reach new people and to allow friends and neighbors to experience this uh, wonderful community. Receive now this morning's benediction. From Hebrews chapter 4. May you and I come boldly to the throne of our gracious God so that we will receive his mercy We'll find his grace to help us when we need it most. Amen.